0: If all right, uh, we have outlines for the service t- or for the sermon. If you would like a copy of the outline, please raise your hand, and Titus Zane will bring you. Titus Zane and J- Abby, my lovely assistant, Abigail, will bring them to you. Abby's refusing. Oh, she lost them. She must get that from your side of the family, because. It didn't come from mine. All right. So raise your hand if you would like a copy of the outline for the service. Uh, and another question real quick. Uh, those of you all who are... Y'all? I No, that wasn't. He wasn't talking to me. Those of you all who are uh, have been coming a little while, do you find the outlines useful? Is this something you want me to keep doing? Something you don't care about? I see one, two. All right. I will keep doing them. Um, okay, so let's pray as Abby finishes handing out, Abby and Jess, uh, and we will uh, get to our our message, and TJ won't have to sit up here any longer. Um, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would uh, be with us this morning. I pray that you would uh, bring me to a place of focus on your word and on your heart. Uh, I pray that you would help me to be faithful to the scriptures and... Uh, just put your spirit with us, Lord God. I pray that your spirit would speak through me and find these folks where they're sitting, where they're at. Uh, I pray that you would, uh, help people to hear from you, that hard ground would be broken and seeds planted, that, that dry ground would be watered, um, that your spirit would be, uh, would just be present in all of this today. In Jesus' name, amen. Ronald, did you need something? Oh. Sorry, uh, I know, what are you going to color on now? Uh, all right, so TJ has uh, agreed to come up and uh, play uh, a couple of uh, songs, and we're going to do, uh, do a quick game as we do this, okay? It's going to be Name That Tune, and it should be a relatively easy Name That Tune because of reasons, and you'll understand. And so first one, we'll do the simple one first, right? All right. all right Oh, I heard Mary had a little lamb, but she didn't form it as a question. So <laughs> I Exactly. Mary had a little lamb. We all know this song, right? Heard it a million times? Uh, all right, uh, can you do a jazzy version for me? Name the tune. No, it is Mary Had a Little Lamb. Anybody want to ask for a, a music style? I bet TJ can do it. Honky, honky-tonk? Actually Can you do honky-tonk? Oh, go on, sit down, Bugs. Uh Anybody? Well, let's see what he can do. Pop. Let's do pop. The song? Okay. Can you do the one that I asked for first? The... Can you name the tune? Marietta Dead Lamb, <laughs> Marietta dead lamb yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, TJ. Uh, so, what happened here, right? They were, I don't know, if maybe you didn't catch the pattern, but they were all the same song, Right? Um, but listening to them, they each had kind of a different feel and a different mood to them, right? I mean, you listen to the first one and it was obviously Mary had a little lamb and it probably reminded us of, um, of, of children's, uh, children's church or, or, uh, you know, when your kids were little and they had to watch Barney and you'd hear Mary had a little lamb and want to like pull your hair out. Um, or, or whatever, like, like, so that first one was classical and then, um, like classic, I guess not classical. And then we had a jazzier version, which felt like the sort of thing you'd want to go walking to or go running or, or drive on a sunny day. And it had like a really neat, you know, feel to it. It was kind of uplifting. And the pop one sounded like the kids were wrong about something. And I'm not sure what it was. I didn't quite get it, but it had a different feel. And each of those different versions communicated A tone and a mood and a feel. The last one, right? Which Rebecca identified. I I messaged her about it early this morning, and she said, "Oh, in a minor key." And and uh, we had a youth group kid who would play that, and he'd play it really deep, and then really high with the Mary Had a Little Lamb, and it made I I would laugh and laugh and laugh. And TJ did it phenomenally, Uh, and it, it has a horror movie kind of thing, right? Like you're listening to it and you're wondering, you know, especially that was a trend for a long time where they would do scary movies with like children's music played in because children are scary. Titus, I'll I'll call you when I need you, okay? Be patient. Um, but it's all the same song. Everybody with me? Um, we're going to be looking at Paul's sermon in Athens today, and, and as we dive into Paul's sermon in Athens, and how he presents the gospel to this group of academics, these philosophers, we're going to talk about the gospel and how we present it, because it is easy, like, I, I actually have illustrations, check this out, I carefully created these this morning. Um, we are the church, and the world is kind of out there, Right? we're over here, they're over there. We are all like sort of people together, but we're different than them. Right? And like so, so the world is out there and we have a message we're supposed to give them. And like a lot of us who who share the gospel or who interact with people and think, "Oh, I really hope that person, you know, they they really would benefit from knowing Jesus." Like like that aspect of it, we say what we need to say, right? And a lot of times we yell it and then you know whatever it is that we say carries with it a weight and depending on who you're talking to it's going to come across one way or another um, for years uh when i was a chaplain i had a young man whose uh uh father was was murdered by uh according to him uh murdered by by a priest which i think may not have been exactly true uh but in his head he had convinced himself that a priest had murdered his father. And when I finally kind of dug into his file, because he was inpatient mental health, I figured out, like, his father was actually killed in a drug deal gone bad on a church property. And it, like, as he thought about it from little kid to teenager, the story got bigger and bigger and bigger. And the first time I met him, and somebody said, Oh, this is our chaplain. And he said, Oh, what's a chaplain? And they explained I was a minister. He, like, spit at me and ran away. <laughs> what? <laughs> and it was hard to talk to that kid about Jesus. You know why? Because I was playing the wrong tune. And no matter what I did, the tune was wrong. And like, we fall into patterns, we learn to say things, we end up in weird places, and we might shout it from the rooftops, but a lot of times the way that the music is coming out is not what we're aiming for, and it's not communicating the best way possible. Um, And so what they end up with is a non-message, right? Or they hear something that reinforces what TV has made fun of Christians to be. Right? And sometimes it's not even like like their fault, sometimes it's our fault. Like we learn to to speak a language. I really wish Mary had been here because I was thinking about this when I put this slide in. We learn to speak Christianese. And we say things like, Oh, we just want to do life together. You know, or I'm going through a season right now. Has anybody ever heard this or is this completely out in left field? Nobody? Um we just want to love on those kids as best we can. Seriously, that one? Yeah. Uh, like, we develop our own language and our own, like, we, we learn inside words, words that are associated with theology. Um, one of my favorite theological words is propitiation, and I try to use it in sermons every once in a while, but who off the top of their head knows what, what propitiation means? In place of, that's right, but that wasn't most of you, was it? Or Ebenezer, which is, I think, yeah, Scrooge. But it's in a song that Jeremy sings regularly, a song I love that I think is beautiful. But sometimes our language or the way we talk or the way we communicate is out of sync. And actually, if you look at like the big movements of the gospel in history, like the Reformation, one of the things that really got the Reformation caught fire in Germany was a fellow named Martin Luther, translated the bible into german that's it the bible was in latin before that and he put it in german and all of a sudden germans could read the bible i think he created the german written language while he was at it which is another like fun thing to do as a hobby if you got nothing better to do um, but all of a sudden when the scriptures were in their language they could speak it they could understand it and it lit a fire right and we as believers, and what we're going to see in Paul's sermon in Athens is this speaking the language component of like like sharing the gospel and following Christ. There's another extreme that churches go to, and that is the how do you do fellow kids extreme, right? Have you all seen this meme before? Uh, the joke is an old person pretending to be a young person. Um, the church often pretends to be the world. And we do stupid things like I, I watched a video of a of a church doing um Uptown Funk. There's a song by somebody I don't even know. There you go. Those young people know what it is. Only well, they, they changed the words to be all churchy. And it was in a worship service and I was watching and I, I cringed. I was like, Man, this is awful. Why would they do this? And like like, there are times we try to speak the language, and we do it very insincerely or ungenuine. Um, it'd be like me showing up in a cowboy hat with spurs and trying to talk to you about Jesus from a cowboy perspective. Anybody buying it? <laughs> Not a whit. Um and so, like, as we dive into our message, we're going to be talking about this Acts sermon Paul did. And, and we are going to, we're going to address this idea. Like, how do we speak to the world? How do we communicate the gospel? How do we act in a way that is appropriate? And, like, that's hard because not everybody wants to share the gospel. Right? Man, talking about Jesus is hard. Right? I mean, like, especially somebody who's hostile um, or somebody who is sort of indifferent or whatever. Like, talking about Jesus or even offering advice like, hey, you know what? I, I hear you struggling. This is what I do. I, I know that Christ died for me, and so these kinds of mistakes are not that. These sins, these, these screw-ups, these imperfections, they're nothing compared to how God loves me. Or I know it feels like nobody cares, but God loves you so much he would do anything to be close with you. Like It's hard to say stuff like that, right? It's easy in certain settings because we speak the language together. It's hard elsewhere. And so we're going to address this idea a little bit. Um, If you're going to fall asleep now, okay, this is the main point. We are called, God is calling us to bring the gospel to the lost. But it has to be biblical and it has to be in their own language, right? And that's a hard line to walk. It's a tension, but follow me here and we'll get to it. And Paul offers us a great example. Now, last week we did Acts 17, the first few verses. And if you remember, Paul went to Athens and he's waiting for his friends to show up. He's really just waylaid there. And he sees idols everywhere. And it makes Paul angry, like super, super angry. And in response to that anger, he says, I'm going to go tell these people about Jesus, right? Right? And so he goes to the market, he starts preaching the gospel, and like the Epicureans and the Stoics, these philosophers who have nothing better to do because the philosophy factory is closed that day, I guess, um, they come to him and they listen to him and they're like, oh, he seems to be speaking of some foreign god. He's bringing us a foreign god. Something new and different that has nothing to do with us. Let's hear it. Let's let's hear him out. And so they take him to a place called Mars Hill, though it probably wasn't Mars Hill. It was probably the Mars Hill Satellite District, you know, like or the Community College version in the corner of the market. And they hold a hearing and they get Paul up there to testify. He's not on trial. He's testifying, and they're having a congressional investigation hearing, a Mars Hill congressional whatever. So. Paul then stood. So they brought him to this place. He's ready to go. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Arapaeus. And by the way, that's Mars Hill. That's where I'm not going to do the Greek ever again. You're going to hear me say Mars Hill. I'm going to substitute it. Got it? And said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Now, we're going further. Called out to him People of Athens, all of you, I see you're very religious. The Greek here is funny, and Paul is sort of telling a joke that nobody gets but him, okay? Um, It's ambiguous, and it comes across probably to the audience as quite the compliment. In reality, it's also kind of an insult, because that's what made Paul mad in the first place. These people are all about these pagan deities, and I can't stand it anymore, and I, it's all I can stand, and I can't stand no more. So he gets up and he preaches the gospel, and then when he gets an opportunity to really address him, he's like, I can see that you'll worship anything. I mean, very religious, right? And they would have taken it as a compliment. Paul is insulting them, but he's doing it in a way that's loving. Paul is, I suspect, barely containing himself, um, but he says, you're very religious people, For as I walked around and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, pause here for half a second. Paul misreads the inscription, and he does it on purpose, which is funny, because these were common altars in Athens and all over Greece, and they've uncovered examples of this, um, but they are generally inscribed to unknown gods, because they wanted to cover all of their bases, right? Uh, they, they wanted to worship everyone to make sure they weren't going to tick anyone off in the process, and they would sacrifice to unknown gods. Um, Paul like co-ops that because it's obviously not an altar to, to Yahweh, right? Like to the God of Israel. But he takes that, changes the inscription. Everybody would have known what he was talking about. Um, and he says, listen, this altar to an unknown God instead of God's. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Now, um, so, like, to begin with, Paul looks for some common ground. He finds an area where they're all going to agree, and he's not speaking of foreign gods. He is going 80% of the way to meet them. Everybody with me? Actually, you might even argue further when you get deeper into this text. But he goes most of the way by saying, listen, you're very religious, and that's to be commended. That's awesome. Good job. Good for you. Um, and then he says... This altar to an unknown God, which isn't really to Yahweh, I'm going to tell you about that God. So he finds something in their setting that he can speak to. And he's engaged them in a way that they're going to hear the best way possible. This is kind of like Martin Luther getting up and like reading the Bible in German instead of Latin, right? I, I don't speak Latin, it's all Greek to me. If you if I only knew the scriptures via a language I didn't know, I would get nowhere. But he meets them where they're at. He speaks in a way that they know. And that is huge because we often think we often think that we have to speak people on our terms. Right? There's actually an entire movement in the church, the King James only movement, and they are nuts. I'm not sorry if you're one of them. I'm not trying to offend you, but they believe that the King James version of the Bible is the only accurate translation, only accurate Bible, including the original Greek and Hebrew. This is what God meant us to have. And they will literally translate the King James into other languages to evangelize it. And there are sects within it where like some people are King James 1611. And some are authorized. I mean, it's, it's weird. But they believe only this language, and everybody should learn to speak Shakespearean English just like Jesus did. Um, but that doesn't work. You can speak King James English to people, but they don't understand it. Right? I, I evangelized sex offenders and drug addicts and everything else for a long time, and I'm here to tell you King James is not a language they speak. It would be a lot cooler if they did, but they don't. Um, and so he spoke their language. He met them where they were at. Uh, the other thing, he is addressing a particular group within the crowd. He's addressing the Stoics. Because for the Stoics, they didn't really believe in sin except for ignorance. To be ignorant was to fail in your purpose in life, which was to understand all, like the knowledge that ties everything together, the logos, according to them, which John uses in the same way. And, in fact, it's all over the Scriptures where they'll take these ideas, and incorporate them in their explanations. You know why? Because that's the language of every spoke, and that's how you talk to them. So he is talking about their ignorance. This is the God you are ignorant of. And it's putting them on notice that I'm talking to you guys. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. And we can all say this is a no-brainer, right? We, I mean, most of us would agree. If there's a God who like laid the foundation of the world, he didn't need a house from me. Right? It's basically what he said to um, David, and I believe Solomon also said it. Like, God doesn't live in houses made of, of stone and, and sticks. Like, that's just not it. God is bigger than that. Um, and so... He, like this God, he he does not live in a temple built by human hands. And so everybody who's there who, like, goes to the temple of Artemis and this temple and this temple, they're all like, wait a minute, what the heck? But the Stoics in the audience are like, you know, we've been saying this for years because Paul is using a phrase that the Stoics used often. He's speaking their language. He's meeting them most of the way. How many scripture verses has Paul quoted so far? None. Just, we'll come back to that. Just pay attention. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath. And everything else. So he continues to play up the Stoic theme. And he continues to address where they're coming from. And talk to these guys directly in their language. And it's huge because he's going out of his way to do it. Paul is a very educated man. He almost certainly was a Hellenistic Jew. He was educated in Greek philosophy and rhetoric. And we see that like play in throughout his writings. But like this is a part of it. He's talking to these guys. And he's speaking their language. And he's going after them. And he's going after them hard. Um, God doesn't need anything, and he gives all of us life. Now, another minor point that I didn't notice when I first wrote it, but noticed during the singing, um, he's drawing them together. It's not the God who feeds the Jews and takes care of them. It's not the God who takes care of his followers. It's not the God who does this. It's not the God who does that. It is the God who takes care of all of us. And so they said, he's talking about foreign gods, and Paul says, no, 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 it's not a foreign god, it's, owl. it's our god, it's all of our god. Um, and so he's addressing this mindset, he's speaking to them, and he's drawing them into common connection with him. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far away from any of us. Here again, he's drawing out the fact we're one, same God. And we're all supposed to look for him. For the Stoics, the search for knowledge was everything. Absolutely everything. And in essence, what Paul is doing, watch this, he's singing his own song, right? Nothing he said is contrary to the scriptures, but he's playing a different tune while he sings it. And they're hearing him better because the way he's playing the song, the way he's preaching the gospel fits where they're sitting and it 's amazing, um, and so he 's there he 's drawing him in he 's playing this like like song perfectly he 's a masterful, masterful musician, like our Tj is um, and for in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your poets have said, we are his offspring, therefore, since we are god 's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image made by human design and skill so Paul quotes two texts one is a Greek poet and the other is a Stoic philosopher not the Old Testament is Eric saying we shouldn't quote scripture when we talk no I'm not I'm saying Paul didn't And I think the reason Paul didn't was because these guys, not Jewish. They're not God-fearers. And when nothing to do with the Jewish people, they probably think they're a little weird, right? He preaches a sermon based on what they know and how they speak. He did not sacrifice meaning. He didn't go to something that was nonsense. Instead, he looked for God's limited revelation of himself, meaning God reveals himself to all people to some degree, which is an idea called common grace. I'll do a video about it. I'm not going to explain it right now. But like he looks for ways that they've heard about God or they've encountered him or they have this sense that surely there's a good and an evil and surely there's more to this life and surely morality should be a thing. He looks for these things and he draws them out. Titus here is sitting and reading a book. Can you stand up and hold up your book for me? Hold it up. My wife found that book on the altar this morning because Titus was in here reading sometime during the week. It is Galactic Hot Dogs. It is a very fun story about a young man who has a hot dog stand and fights aliens. Is that about it? Yeah. And it was sitting on the altar, and she was kind of like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I found this up front. And it occurred to me that's sort of funny because it's an interesting and fun book, but it is not gospel. And if I could quote Galactic Hot Dogs in a way that communicated the gospel, I might. I might wear a Dairy Queen shirt. I might say almost anything if it shares the gospel in a way that helps people understand who Jesus is. Right? Like, I I don't know. But we don't preach off of just anything. We preach off of things that point... To Christ, the point to the truth of the gospel. And so that's what Paul does here. He says, listen, we are all offspring together and God is not this. He is not that. I'm going to continue to tell you about who this God is. And so Paul is writing out this common theme and saying, you think I'm preaching foreign gods, but it's not foreign. It's all of us. He's building his case, and he's drawing out their ignorance of the true God, which, again, the Stoics in the audience are like, well, if there's somebody to know, we're going to know it because that's how you live. For he has set a day when he will judge the world and justice by man. By the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now, here's the tricky part. There are some things that Greeks are going to own, and there are some things they ain't. Everything Paul has said so far fits their philosophy and their mindset and their language and their way of looking at things, except the resurrection. Because early, early, early Greek philosophy... Um, again, under a guy named Socrates and Plato and then Aristotle, like these rock stars of philosophy, they said this world is garbage, basically. The real version of everything is out there somewhere else and the forms and this and that. That's the perfection is somewhere else. And so for them, resurrection is nonsense because nobody, want, nobody wants to come back to the broken place, Right. We don't, like, even our culture has moved away from this idea, like the biblical concept of resurrection and recreation, right? And we, we see in cartoons and even in our books, like, oh, up on a cloud with wings and a halo and everything else, and it's completely separate. And we ignore all that stuff about, like, the world recreated, new heaven, new earth. New cities where God will dwell amongst his people and people resurrected into glorified bodies and living lives with God the way we were intended to. Instead, we want to think about this ethereal other place, but that's not it. And so when Paul says, listen, raising him from the dead, the audience would have been like, oh, and they would have been horrified. I, I, uh, I, I really wish I had used a gift there um, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead. Some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. Oops, sorry, my slides. Uh, we want to hear you again on this subject. Ah, shoot, there it is. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, uh, Dionysius a member of the Mars Hill group also a woman named Demarius, and a number of others. Uh, when Paul wrote his letter, I mislabeled this uh, t- slide. This is actually Corinthians uh, 1. Uh, Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews. The Jews had trouble believing in Christ crucified because the idea of God dying on a cross in substitution for us, taking our sins on himself, was insane. And Jews would hear that and they were offended by it. And it became a stumbling block, the thing that got in the way of their belief, um, and foolishness to the Gentiles. My favorite version of this translation, instead of Gentiles, a lot of times, most of the times, is translated foolishness to the Greeks. Because the Greeks would not willingly believe in the resurrection. They considered it an offensive concept. It was nonsense. It was ridiculous. It was foolishness. And Paul still got there and he still preached it. But he set up common ground before he did it. He found common places. I'm on your team. Hear what I have to say. Hear my reasoning. And then he presented the hard stuff. Did he dodge the hard stuff? No. He did not. And that's important. But to those who God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So the audience ultimately rejects him, um, the majority of them, and they do it based on their philosophy. Which is funny, they never argue with him. They never say, can you prove it? How do you know this man raised from the dead? Is there any proof of the resurrection? Is there any this? Is there any of that? Give us some arguments. They basically were like, all right, well, this is nonsense. Get out of here. Um, these guys who prided themselves in their wisdom and their thinking and their philosophizing and their careful consideration quit. Which is, man, heartbreaking. Um, that's going to be one of the challenges anytime we present the gospel, anytime we talk to this world, anytime we demonstrate who Christ is, it will be a stumbling block anywhere we go. So what are the big principles behind the text? Um, first off, the Holy Spirit is what makes preaching effective, and that is a hard pill to swallow as a pastor. The worst sermons I preach, somebody inevitably comes to me in tears. That moved me. Are you really kidding? Like I, I felt like everybody slept through it. I got a few people I'm trying to keep awake now, but the heat is up really high, and the Holy Spirit does the work. All the clever preaching and the Bruno Mars, Mars Hill, Uptown nonsense, um, you know, adapted singing ain't gonna bring anybody to Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit that makes it effective. So any of us that desires desires to fulfill the Great Commission, right? That's the thing that we're commanded to to do, like, hey, if you're going to follow Christ, you need to have the Spirit. It is weird how hard it is to find a Holy Spirit image, but the Spirit is often presented as fire, right? The message we preach, everything we know, effective communication, conversion, the whole nine yards, it comes about as a result of the Spirit's intervention. And so apart from the Spirit being a part of it, we're wasting our time. Can the Spirit move without me? Oh, yeah. I assume he does all the time. Um, The other trick, though, is I have to bring the Spirit with me. Like, I, I read a great argument that no preacher should preach a sermon until he's preached it to himself first. Unless the Holy Spirit is in you, unless you're in communion with God, unless you're in this relationship, and he is speaking through you and inspiring you, and in your words, like, you're not going to accomplish a whole lot. And in order for that to happen, you have to be in relationship with them. You have to turn on the Wi-Fi, so to speak, right? I was thinking about it a little like a radio, only nobody owns a radio anymore. Uh, So I had to think about it a little like uh, internet radio. For you youngins, uh, once upon a time when you listened to music, you had to turn a little dial and find the right channel and you have to fiddle with the dial when the weather changed. And if you wanted to listen to a basketball on AM, which is old people radio, you had to wait until it was late at night because then it worked right. And it's true. Um, now you turn on your Wi-Fi. If the Wi-Fi gets laggy or slow, you ain't getting the message. Right? If you connect to the printer accidentally, which I might do a couple times a week, it doesn't work at all. And so it is for us, if we want to, like, like us communicating the gospel, us living Christ and communicating grace and everything that we do. We have to be in connection with the Holy Spirit. We have to be filled and vessels of the Holy Spirit um, there's a non-negotiable. Uh, the message itself of the gospel is a non-negotiable. I can't preach galactic hot dogs. Right. I heard a really awful sermon by uh, a certain pastor who is very well known and has sold a lot of books uh, I'm not going to use his name. We'll call him Warren Rickinson. Um and this Warren fella, he was preaching the sermon and he said, "Oh, well, here's how the cross works. Here's how the death of Christ for our sins works. If I were out playing golf and i was trying to hit a hole in one and I missed, Christ gives me a second chance cuz he hit the cuz he hit the ball for me." And it's like, "Wow, what a clever and incorrect metaphor." In reality, me trying to be like Jesus on my own is like trying to hit 18 consecutive hole-in-ones at the hardest golf course in the world in a hurricane with a set of plastic Fisher-Price golf clubs and a wiffle ball with broken legs. Like, we can't do it. It is utterly impossible, and Christ does it for us. And if we abandon the gospel himself, itself, the truth that Christ died for our sins, and only as we follow Christ are we made new and, and resurrected ultimately and saved and everything else. Like Jesus died for our sins. Without that element, without that offensive part, we're giving them little pieces of a puzzle, but not the whole thing. And if you do it enough, people will be convinced that their little pieces of the puzzle are the entire picture. And that's the worst thing you can do to someone as a preacher. And so ultimately, we have to move in the direction of presenting the whole gospel and presenting it clearly. Um, I read a very fun story. Not a very fun story. A very horrible story uh, about World War II. There was a uh, Japanese right before Pearl Harbor. And the Japanese generals were discussing what they were going to do. And it was pretty universally agreed on that attacking America was the worst plan you could have. Because the American economy was enormous. And they had money. And they had power. And you didn't want to fight those guys. The Japanese had this huge problem because they're fighting a war with China that they couldn't win. And they were stuck. And they were trying to figure out what do we do with the Americans? What do we do next? And so then this particular advisor, Kanoa, I'm saying it wrong. I don't speak Japanese, asked the emperor to step in and declare that diplomacy, not war, was Japan's top priority. Emperor Hirohito's spokesman asked the army and navy what they wanted to happen. When no answer came, Hirohito broke convention by saying aloud that their silence was regrettable. He then read a poem his grandfather had written, which went, in part, in all four seas, all are brothers and sisters, then why oh why these rough winds and waves and so what he was he got up and he said it's regrettable nobody will answer me and they wouldn't answer because they wouldn't communicate that because Japanese culture said not to and when he got up to speak he read a poem and all they were asking is do we go to war or not and he read a poem and he thought the poem perfectly portrayed it Hirohito intended this pacifist lament To indicate his desire for peace, but it was too ambiguous. Army Minister Hideki Tojo and many others took it as a a fatalistic acquiescence to war. If Hirohito had stated his position explicitly or rejected their plans, war might have been avoided. And actually, if you read the history of Japan's buildup to Pearl Harbor... Over and over again, they tried to go the other way, and they kept communicating wrong or saying the wrong things. Even their last-ditch like effort to declare peace with the United States, they sent a guy to speak to, the, to speak to the president, and the guy who went was the same guy who had been made famous by signing a treaty with Hitler between Japan and Germany. And the, the Americans were like, are you really sending that guy? No way. You know, we're not taking your celebrity Hitler friend. Like, no way. And they didn't trust him. And it was mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake. Miscommunication. The problem is that we often do the same. We speak in ways that do not communicate with the world around us. We use language or like, excuse me, instead we have to seek out the language of the people we're talking to. We need to figure out their metaphors, their things, the things they understand. And like our method of preaching and evangelism, should be tuned in to the frequency of the audience's best reception. Like, we have to learn to speak their language. Um, about a month into moving here, I was sitting in my car with my kids, and Betty Bitts came walking up to my window and knocked on it, and I rolled it down, and she said, Hey, nice outfit. And I looked at my t shirt and shorts and thought, Well, all right. And I was like, It's just a t shirt. Oh, you mean my kids? No, the car, the car. I don't know how people talk here. Dwayne told me about farming the first time I ever visited his house, all about swathers. I had no idea what a swather was or saw flies. Or he thoroughly explained it, and I had no idea what he was talking about. I'm not blaming you. I'm the dumb one. Uh, <laughs> and so in communicating with the world, in seeing them, we have to look at them not just in terms of the Great Commission but in terms of our love for them through the great commandment, love God, love your neighbor. If I love my neighbor, I need to figure out how to talk to him. My daughter, who I love so much, I don't know how to talk to her most of the time. I make her have tantrums um, in the morning. I can't get her out of bed and dress and everything else because she melts down and cries and everything else. And I love her, and so I've got to figure out how to talk to her. I love my neighbor who is lost, and I've got to figure out how to talk to him. If quoting scripture turns him off, then I've got to figure out a different way. I've got to love through my actions or through my attitude or whatever. I've got to figure out ways to love and communicate the scriptures. This is what we are called to do. This is what Paul is doing. The stumbling blocks and foolishness, these are the components we can't get rid of. They'll never attract alkylades. You will never run a megachurch throwing out the stumbling blocks. But it's the truth of our message. And without that, we have nothing to offer. Right? I'm watching my clock I brought up, and I'm not quite over, but I have communion. Uh, how do we apply this? What do we do with it? First off, we have to be filled with the Spirit. We've got to be in communication with them. Right? You've got to share your life with people. Um, if I'm going to speak to the world, I've got to do it in their language, and I've got to share. i got to spend time with them. I've got to not hide from them. If I live in a mansion and then go preach at the homeless shelter every week, I might come across as disingenuous. Um, we have to observe and consider and pray and look for ways the truth is shared. Uh, one of the most amazing uh, stories I've come across is the story of the peace child. Um, real quick, these guys were trying to evangelize a, a tribe of people and they considered it to be a heroic thing to kill your enemy. And so the story of Jesus crucified, the hero was the priest's. and like so they'd preach and these guys would be like man those chief priests were awesome man they killed their enemy and after years of frustration trying to preach the gospel to them what ended up happening was they discovered the story of the peace child where it was a tradition that tribes would declare peace when the father or when the tribe leader would give his son as a gift to an enemy tribe and they said Jesus is the peace child between God and us sometimes we got to listen and talk And hear what they're saying and speak to them. And it comes out of loving our neighbors, loving them more than anything. One of the ways that Christ communicated the gospel to believers and to all people who would follow him, and I'm going to call my guys forward, was through common means. At the Last Supper, when he was about to be betrayed, when he was about to be tried, when he would go to the cross, He ate a meal with his followers and he took the bread of the meal like the Last Supper and had all of this symbolic stuff going on with it that Jews would understand. And for all of us, bread has symbolic meaning. It is our food. It's what we consume. It gives us energy. It gives us life. It is the most basic thing that we have. And he took that bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you.